2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 18, Paul declares, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Father, we just humbly ask in this moment for the grace of your spirit to be receptive and attentive to what you are trying to say to us through what you have written in your word for us. Lord, we ask that by your spirit's ministry, prepare each one of us accordingly, and may your spirit now speak to us through what you have already spoken in the word of God. So bless your word, Lord. We ask this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think one of the most powerful and wonderful miracles to observe is not necessarily maybe a blind person receiving their sight or someone who is sick being healed from some disease. As wonderful as that is, I think one of the most powerful and wonderful miracles we can observe is when damaged and broken relationships are healed and are restored. When that which once was healthy in a relationship is experiencing what we call this process of reconciliation or being reconciled. You'll notice those terms reconciliation and being reconciled are actually used five times here in these short few verses as we finish chapter five together. When you look up the word reconciled, it's defined as follows. It's referring to settling a disagreement or resolving hurt that has divided two parties. Whether that's just two individuals in a relationship, whether that's two families, whether that's whatever, two parties where there needs to be a restoration of harmony. Settling a disagreement, resolving hurt that has divided two parties in order to restore harmony back to that relationship. And let me just say, reconciliation is God's specialty. God, in all of his love and his wisdom and his power being at work, is in the reconciliation business. It is one of his specialties. The word of God is very clear on that. He has demonstrated that most clearly in what he has done, as well what he continues to do as he works by his spirit to reconcile particularly sinful humanity back into relationship with himself, to bring mankind who he loves and who he always intended to have a relationship with originally back into right relationship with him because our relationship with God has been damaged and wounded because of sin on our behalf. And this is what our text reveals to us, God's marvelous work of reconciliation and the great exchange that God offers to mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, What's interesting, the term reconciled or reconciliation, as it appears repeatedly in the passage here, when you look at that term and its original Greek root, it literally is a term that means to exchange. 
And what it specifically means, the term in its original sense, it refers to exchanging one thing for another thing. That is giving something in order to receive something different back or to give something in order to receive something even in a different condition back. So as we think of that regarding relationships, which is what the context is here, reconciliation, it refers to giving up one status or condition in a relationship to have a different status and condition in that relationship. To say the relationship is in this condition, let's exchange that. Let's exchange this condition that our relationship is in for a different condition or a different status. So for example, you can have a good and a healthy and a harmonious relationship. And you can exchange a good and healthy relationship if you want to do something selfish and proud for a very bad, unharmonious, unpleasant relationship condition. So you can have a good relationship and you can exchange that good relationship because of selfishness or pride or stubbornness or whatever it is for a really bad and unhealthy status in a relationship. You can exchange and have a bad relationship. Or you can do the opposite. You can have a very bad relationship, a severed or broken relationship where there's hostility between you and another, and you can exchange that for a restored relationship, for a reconciled relationship where there's peace and harmony that comes back into the relationship. And that is the root or origin of this term reconciled or reconciliation that we find Paul using here as he's writing in our passage. And this is what God seeks to orchestrate with each human soul, to offer us an exchange in our relationship with him as people. The relationship we begin with from birth, the Bible teaches and we'll talk about, is that we are in a broken relationship from God. We are born in that condition, whether we knew it or not, whether we've recognized it yet or not, that is what the Bible teaches that we need to have our relationship made right with God. We don't begin in right relationship with God. And God wants to take that severed relationship and restore it back as our creator to us the way in which he originally intended to be. Now, in the backdrop of what we just looked at last time we were together, verse 17, the last statement, Paul had just made a marvelous declaration regarding what God does and what transpires in our life when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. If I can draw your attention back to verse 17, where we left last time, Paul had just said there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the idea is in relationship with Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So the Bible teaches if we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we get a brand new life. It's God's marvelous opportunity to each person to have a do-over, a second chance, an opportunity to be done with the life you've lived up to that point and to say, you know what, and who hasn't said it before, man, I wish I could just start all over again. Well, that's what God's word offers. That's what Jesus offers. He offers every human being the opportunity to basically have their slate wiped clean, to have everything of their old way and their old life dead and done and put away from them, and to start a brand new life, to have a brand new life as a Christian, as a child of God, and to have a completely new identity, a completely new status. He says old things pass away and all things become new, all things your perspectives, your views, your attitudes, your desires, the way that you live, your patterns, everything becomes brand new. 
And this is the glorious thing that God offers to us in a relationship with Jesus. Now, having assured us of that spiritual reality there in verse 17, old things have passed away, all things become new. How does that happen? How can God justify doing such with people like us who make messes of our lives, right? How does God do that? Well, that's what Paul goes on to conclude with in the remainder of the chapter. Look with me in verse 18 as he carries on. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, verse 19, that God was in Christ, he says, reconciling the world to himself not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, verses 18 and 19 here speak to us of this amazing doctrine that we call reconciliation. And again, when we talk about the term doctrine, we're talking, it's basically a biblical term for teaching, the doctrine or the teaching or understanding of a particular subject spiritually. And it is important that we appreciate doctrine. We're living in a day and age where the church has become such an entertainment industry, it seems, that it's more about impressing and exciting and getting everyone stimulated and making it like a pep rally that in some ways, as the Bible warned, that in the last days, people would have no willingness for what the Bible calls sound doctrine, to endure sound doctrine. But look, we need doctrine. We need truths and understanding because if we don't know the truth, we are going to get way off track in our lives. That's why Jesus said it's the truth that will set you free. And these verses really are a great teaching on the doctrine of reconciliation, which is a main component to God's plan of salvation for mankind. The very root and basis of how we can have relationship for him. It's why God can offer to us a new identity. Why can God give to us a new position as talked about in verse 17? Well, it's because of his incredible love and the sacrifice and the work that God did on our behalf that he can offer us this new start spiritually. Now, notice with me, if you would, the first thing that we are pointed to in these verses is who is responsible for the salvation of our souls. And that's important to know. Who is the one that's responsible for the salvation of our souls. Well, speaking of being set free from the old life and being given a new life, the last statement Paul made in verse 17, look at it, is he says, all things have become new. And then Paul confidently declares in the next breath, now all things are of what? God. He says, all things have become new if you're in Christ. And then he goes on to say, and all things that I'm about to talk about of salvation in Christ, they're all of God. The idea is all things pertaining to the experience of salvation are of God. That is, its origin is from God. The provision for salvation is of God. The plan of salvation is of or from God. Everything that's required to bring about salvation, it all comes from God. The process to accomplish our salvation came and continues to come from God. Every aspect of rescuing souls of sinful humanity and undeserving mankind comes from God. It's all because of him. It's all because of what he has done. It's all because of what he continues to do presently. And all we need to do is be willing recipients, right? That's our only responsibility is not to be stubborn, not to be proud, 
but to just be willing recipients of a God of love who's offering to us a change of relationship and exchange in the life that we need. And the idea is important to realize is that God deserves all the credit, all the glory. He's the one that deserves all the praise, all the honor. And we need to keep that in mind for this reason because that's one of the things that inspires us to praise and to worship God. Praising and worshiping God is our response of what he has done for us because he's worthy of glory. He's worthy of honor. And when you experience the salvation of God and you realize I am so undeserving, I did nothing. I brought a bag of mess and I laid it at the feet of Jesus at the cross and he did everything. I don't know how you can't want to come into a sanctuary and sing your lungs out to God. I can't understand why you wouldn't be inspired to want to praise God. And look, that is why it's so crucial to understand the doctrines of salvation. Because these are the very things that give us the heart of gratitude and appreciation. You know, David declared, remember, he said, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. I don't know about you. When I first became a Christian, uh, when I first got saved, nobody had to say, now, listen, when you go to church, I want you to sing. There just something happened within me. I just needed to do something to tell God thanks. There was, there was this heart of gratitude. You know, it'd be the same way if somebody knocked you out of the way and took a bullet for you and then they survived somehow, but you knew they saved your life. You would kind of feel indebted to them, right? There'd be that sense of, I mean, I feel indebted to you forever, man. You, you took a bullet for me or you knocked me out of the way and you got hit by the car and I didn't. And so the rest of my life, I mean, I have such a debt of gratitude to you. Look, That's the idea, is that salvation and understanding what God did, and he did everything that he says here, all things are of God. It's all of God. And when we understand that, that's what propels us to want to worship. The miracle of salvation is all God's doing. 2 Timothy 1.9 declares it this way. It is God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. Listen, if you're a note taker or a Bible student, you want additional to refer to that very subject, write in your Bible, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 9, and read through that just slowly and in a meditative way and realize as Paul talks about, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And we were enslaved to sin and the prince of the power there was ruling over us. And he spends the first four verses painting this dark black canvas of the mess that we were in, that we were enslaved to sin and dead and disconnected from God. And we were being blown to and fro with the winds of this world. And then he says, as he gets into it, but God, who is rich in mercy. And then he just begins to describe how God unwound everything through the work of Jesus and how by grace, not of works, but by grace, we're saved through faith. And it's a gift of God. It's not of works so that none of us can boast. How wonderful. You know, I'm so thankful for that. Could you imagine being in heaven and somebody boasting? It'd just be miserable. It wouldn't wouldn't be much like heaven. It'd be like earth. It's all people do on earth is boast. How wonderful in heaven. No one's going to boast. Everyone's going to bow down and worship because they realize they are only there by the grace of God because of what he did and what he continues to do. And God takes dark and depraved conditions of human beings and he completely rejuvenates them. It's all of God. He rejuvenates and he restores. And in order to do this, because we are so depraved and lost, 
It takes an incredible work, and we don't want to overlook that, an incredible work of reconciliation on God's behalf. To bring that to pass is something that's incredible. And I think Paul was so amazed by this reality of this incredible work of reconciliation because Paul understood, remember, he's the one declared in Romans 7, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. If Paul knew anything, Paul knew, I am broken, I am fractured, I am, I am dark and, and dead on the inside, but God rescued me. God intervened in my life. And so I think Paul simply had to rejoice over this reality. And that's why he says of this reconciliation, all things are of God who has, notice he says, reconciled us to himself. That is, God did the work of reconciliation. Again, reconciliation is that process of restoring harmony back to an estranged or separated relationship. Now, these verses predominantly speak really of two main things. One being how God judicially accomplished what was necessary to provide terms of reconciliation for the whole sinful world. That's one main component here. How God judicially accomplished the reconciliation terms for the whole sinful world. And then secondly, how God personally, you might say, and presently still to this day, is able one by one to bring about reconciliation for each and every sinner, for every soul, for every person. Now, to look at that, to kind of consider, I want to look at it in the reverse order because I think that's the way that it flows better. So first of all, let's talk about how God judicially accomplished reconciliation terms for the whole sinful world. Look with me in verse 19. This is how God did this judicially for all of humanity to make the terms available, to provide us opportunity for reconciliation. Verse 19 says that God was in Christ, notice, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. So God himself lovingly and mercifully took initiative to personally solve the problem that humanity caused with God as their creator. He says here in verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. That is by and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God was working to reconcile the lost word back to himself. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment, literally. If you read the verses slowly, God himself was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. God was in Christ. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. God took upon himself a second nature. God being divine in his nature took upon himself a human nature. God clothed himself with human flesh and came to this earth to live among us as a man in order to rescue us from our separated condition from him. Holy God in his great love literally became a man in the person of Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ was God dwelling in the flesh. That's why Paul says God was in Christ, reconciling the world back to himself. Colossians 1 tells us of Jesus, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So our Lord Jesus Christ, who was and is God, became a man to be that perfect mediator between God and humanity. Again, I've said this many times before. It's almost as if Jesus stood in the gap 
holding the hand of his Father in heaven, divinity, and reached out as well down to humanity in order to build the bridge and be a mediator because he became man but remained God. And so he built this perfect bridge to be available. The Amplified translation of this verse says, it was God personally present in Christ who was reconciled and restoring the world back to favor with himself. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's pretty mind-blowing that an almighty, amazing, all-powerful God had such love for his creation that he would do such literally as the offended party become man to come rescue us. But what does that prove to us? It proves how much he wants to have relationship with us now and how much he wants to have relationship with us forever. So for the full impact of understanding the importance of that, let's consider some of the realities from our text here of how and why that really was able to come to pass. The reason God had to initiate providing, as verse 19 says, reconciling the world, all of humanity back to himself, is the whole world had the same problem. And we know that from the first three chapters of our Bible, right? The problem is the entire world or human race was separated from God relationally. Genesis chapter one through three record this for us. The Bible tells us that God created Adam, the first man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That is, he came alive physically, but he also came alive spiritually. And it says that Adam and God walked together in perfect harmony and fellowship. They had complete open relationship. And remember, God gave to Adam one prohibition because love is based upon choice. Love is not forced, right? When, when, when you force someone to do something with you, that's called rape. God won't rape humanity's conscience. God gives us free will. God loves us. God gives us choice. So God had it to provide choice and opportunity. So God said to Adam, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely enjoy all of my creation, harmony, perfection. I mean, the, the garden of Eden experience, walking in perfect harmony and relationship with God. But he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, right? For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. So God said, one prohibition, Adam. All I'm asking, prove that you want to be in relationship with me, that you want to honor my authority as your God, as your maker, as your creator. Don't do this one thing from the day you eat of it. There will be a consequence. You'll surely die. Well, we know what happened. The Bible records. Unfortunately, Satan came in, brought deception, and ultimately Adam willfully chose to disobey God's command. He made a conscious choice that God gave him freedom to have. And he chose to disobey God's word and God's authority. And consequently, what God said was true came to pass. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he severed relationship with God. Because not only at that point did physical death enter into the human race, which is why we all get sick and die. But more than that, spiritual death happened. That is, Adam lost that living relationship he had with God. Because in the very next scene, Adam's not walking with God. What's he doing? He's hiding from God. Now he feels guilty and uncomfortable. There's a sense of guilt and wrongdoing. He's become awakened to sin and to wrongdoing. And now he's hiding from God. And, and what's God? Adam, where are you? Something happened. That relationship became severed. Adam died inside spiritually and lost relationship with God immediately following his sin as a consequence. 
And it caused separation, not just between him and God, but really it caused a consequence for all of humanity that would follow after him. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.12, through one man, sin entered into the world. And then death came through sin. Thus, death has spread to all men because all have sinned. In other words, the scripture teaches that Adam, being our representative of humanity or mankind, could only pass on to us what his own experience was. So Adam, once he died or lost relationship with God spiritually, spiritual death, and he still had physical life, which ultimately ended in death, Adam could only pass on to each generation after him what he himself had. Adam had physical life that was terminal, that would end in death, and Adam in and of himself had no spiritual life. So he could only pass on to humanity what he possessed, which was physical life that would end in death and a death spiritually between him and God. So he had no relationship with God. He couldn't pass that on. And that is why each and every person, the Bible says, is born by nature sinful, spiritually dead. Adam could not pass on to us what he did not have. That's why God has to reconcile us because we all are born of Adam. Every one of us, ultimately, we're all traced back to the exact same ancestor. You can get rid of a lot of this nonsense they're trying to teach in our schools today by recognizing at the end of the day, everybody's got the same relative. Everybody does. So we don't need to figure out, do, do we like each other, not like each other, fight? They're trying to get us all to fight. We're all connected whether we want to be or not. We're connected to the same relative, and we all got the same problem. We're all broken, sinful people. Why wouldn't we want to try and get along? We don't need people telling us a bunch of nonsense to try and make us not get along. We should listen to the word of God, not listen to people trying to promote crazy things nowadays and teach them to our children and make everybody get divisive. We all have the same relative and we all have the same problem. We're born as men and women from Adam and Eve originally and we're born sadly alienated from God. This is why reconciliation is essential. And you have to understand that to realize that we're not okay. See, that's the deception the devil wants to keep everybody in their whole life long. Oh, you're okay, you're okay. Just try and weigh out your good and your bad deeds. And, and God says, no, we're not okay. That's why you feel broken inside. That's why you feel empty inside until you're reconciled to God in a relationship with Jesus. There is something that needs to be addressed. We're created, disconnected, if you would, from God. Yes, we're all created by God, our physical life. We don't diminish that, but we're all disconnected from God spiritually from birth. That's how we start out our life. At some point, we need to be reconciled back into relationship with God. And thankfully, God in his love didn't leave that issue unaddressed. In his amazing love and amazing wisdom, he initiated and prepared, let's call it this, since we're talking about reconciliation, a, a spiritual peace treaty. God provided terms for an alienated creation of people. He provided terms for a peace treaty spiritually so that we could be reconciled back to God. Again, we have to remember God is loving, but God is also holy and righteous. And sin is, is evil, and so it causes separation from God. And human sin is not just something that makes us you kind of somewhat displeasing to God, it causes us to be completely estranged from God. Sin cannot be in God's presence. God is holy and pure and perfectly righteous. In fact, actually, sin brings great offense to God and all of the collective sin of every one of us from our first breath 
the things we've thought wrong in our lives, the bad attitudes we've had, the, you know, the, the, the things that we've said wrong, the things that we've done wrong. The collective sin of humanity greatly dishonors and disrespects a holy and a righteous God. In fact, so much so that God declares in his word that before we are reconciled to God, the Bible says that our sin actually makes us his enemies. His enemies. Oh, come on, that's strong. No, that's what God says. That, that's how offensive our sin is. It makes us actually not just estranged, but enemies of God. It says here our human sin, verse 19 he calls it, is referred to, notice, as our trespass or trespasses. And that word trespass or trespasses used refers to disregarding a boundary or a law. So God has certain boundaries for humanity. We all violate the boundaries. We all disregard God's holy laws and what's right and best for us as people. And when we violate God's holy boundaries, we become lawbreakers and it makes us offensive to God and his holiness. So therefore, the Bible says we're actually in that condition, an enemy to God. That's what the Bible says. In that condition, we are actually God's enemy. And the problem is humanity is the offending party. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who are in violation, yet God did not just declare war on us. Could have, right? <laughs> he didn't just declare war on us and destroy us with his power and holiness. He prepared terms for peace. Romans 5, 8 says this, 8 through 11, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. Listen, while we were yet sinners at our worst, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified or made righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. So again, the Bible declares to us sin is a great wickedness, that the soul that sins shall surely die, and that we are actually under the wrath of an almighty God. Someone had to deal with the huge grievance, the egregious violation against heaven's king and heaven's kingdom. Something needed to be done, and it was clear to God that as people who were broken, we were doomed. And there was nothing we were going to do to resolve our situation. We were in an enemy-like condition, and yet God and his love stepped in with the solution. The offended king stepped in with a loving and kind solution. He's the one that provided the peace terms. Jesus is suffering and death in which he shed his blood, we might say, is what settled the terms, and Jesus' blood becomes the peace treaty. It becomes the established peace treaty to offer terms of peace and reconciliation to pacify the holy righteousness of a just God and to offer to us as offending people the opportunity to have forgiveness and harmony restored and reconciliation back with our creator. Colossians 1 declares it this way, for it pleased the father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell and by him through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And Paul says this to Christians, and you who once were alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Again, we were 
enemies, alienated from God. That's why we read in verse 19 here that God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, seeking to restore harmony. God's made a way to remove the responsibility of guilt from sin from the entire world for all of our trespasses. 1 Timothy 2 says there's one God, one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So Paul in verse 19 says, look, there's the universal plan. God's accomplished this. He's made reconciliation and a peace treaty available for all mankind. Everybody has the same peace treaty made available to them, and God paid for all the terms. He made everything possible. He's offering it to every person. And then Paul now goes on to say, but yet there is this thing of personal application that the peace treaty is offered. The peace treaty has been prepared. God offers it to all mankind, to you and I. But secondly, in verse 18, Paul describes how God personally and presently accomplishes that reconciliation for each and every soul that chooses to receive God's terms, that chooses to be reconciled and wants to be restored to God. Paul says in verse 18, now all things are of God. Notice, he says, who has reconciled, Paul uses personal terms, us, to himself, through Jesus Christ. So Paul refers to his own conversion here now, his own salvation experience. He says God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself. That's what he was doing, making the plan possible. But he says, but God in the personal sense, in the present tense, for you and I today, as Paul's writing to these Corinthians, he says God has reconciled us, me and you Corinthians there, the church at Corinth. Paul here is referring to all those who've surrendered and received the terms of the peace treaty that's been established, signed by God, and sealed by the blood of Jesus. Look, this is very important. Has God made a peace treaty and offered it to all of sinful humanity? Absolutely. Every person in the world. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The whole world's got the opportunity. But what's the key? Every single person in the world has to choose whether or not they're going to accept the terms of the treaty, whether they are going to willingly receive God's offer and put their name on the eternal peace treaty in order to benefit from what God's offering. And listen, until we do, we each remain personal enemies to God in our sinful condition. That's what the Bible teaches, that we have to make that exchange. We have to remain in, in an awareness that, look, there needs to come an exchange. If I don't put my name on the peace treaty and sign to it and accept what God's offering and receive his terms and his free gift made available to me, then I remain under the wrath of God. I choose to remain his enemy. I don't settle my violations. They're not pardoned. The Bible teaches that we're all born separate from God and sinful. So we have to personally understand God's terms. We have to understand that we are in a bad place, that we deserve eternal damnation and torment in hell. That is the punishment we righteously deserve. Jesus said the devil wasn't created, but for, for the, the, the angels, or Jesus said the devil was created for the devil and his angels. Hell wasn't even created for humanity. 
It was created for the devil and his angels, Jesus said. But yet, listen, you have to understand as well, too, God needs an alternative if people don't want to go to heaven. Because every soul is eternal. So if people don't want God's terms and God's peace treaty, they don't want to come to heaven and be forgiven of their sin, God has to allow them to go somewhere. And if they want to stay an enemy of God and under the guilt of their sin, then the only alternative God has is that they will be tormented and burn in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And we need to understand that is our condition. See, man, we got to talk such a bummer. Well, listen, why do you want to be saved if you don't think there's anything you need to be saved from? It's like a person is going to receive help if they don't think they need help. It's only when you get desperate enough to realize I need help that you finally receive help, right? Well, the same is true spiritually. Well, why are we going to talk about the bummer? Well, you don't appreciate the good news unless you know the bad news. You got to know the bad news. This is the true condition of our soul. But the good news is God's made a solution for that through Jesus. He loves us, and he's made everything available to us if we're willing to wave the surrender flag. And how do we wave the surrender flag? Well, it's real not complicated. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus died and took the punishment for our sins. Jesus rose again from the power of death to defeat death for us, to defeat the devil's control over our lives. And Jesus is the offer of the peace treaty to be reconciled to God because he is the mediator between God and man to reconcile us back to him. Ephesians 2 says, by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Hear the word gift. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. I can't work hard enough for it. If there was something we could do to earn our way into right relationship with God, why would God send his own beloved son to the earth and let him be spit upon and his beard ripped out of his face and be whipped and beaten and mocked and his clothes stripped off him and be naked and and ashamed and tortured and die? If you and I could just do something good enough, The whole indication of Jesus suffering the way that he did was because there was no other way. That was necessary. Sin has to be punished. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. Someone had to die for sin. That's why Jesus had to die. He died for my sin. He died for your sin. He took that for us on our behalf so that he could offer us the great exchange that these verses talk about, so that he could take our sin and offer to us forgiveness and righteousness whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved the bible says so paul says this is what happened god reconciled us who've come to him to himself through jesus and again that's the emphasis of verse 19 not that we reconcile ourselves to god but paul says he reconciled us to himself We don't reconcile ourselves. He reconciles us. Titus 3 declares it this way. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions. I was a good guy before I came to Christ. Well, I don't know. The Bible tells me different. The Bible says I was foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, hating and hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things which we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth 
and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ. That's what God has done for us who are Christians this morning. And that is what God still is offering to all of mankind, the gift, the free opportunity to be reconciled back to him as their creator, to know their sins are forgiven, to know they're in right relationship with God, they've made peace with God before they die, and that when they do die, they will be back in a Garden of Eden experience with their creator in fellowship with him forever and ever. This is what God offers. Now, once we become reconciled, Paul wants us to know that there's a purpose that we've also been reconciled while we're still on this earth. That's what Paul declares at the end of verse 18 and the end of verse 19. He says, look, he has verse 18, given us who are now Christians, the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, the end of it, he's committed to us who are Christians, the word of reconciliation. Notice, we don't have to wonder if you're a Christian this morning, what's my purpose on earth? Well, there may be lots of different secondary things that are your purposes while you're on earth, and we all figure them out as we navigate through the rest of our life. But we all really have one main purpose as Christians. If you've been reconciled to God, now God wants to use you to help other people be reconciled to God, just like you have been. He's given to us the message and the ministry of reconciliation. We're commissioned to live for the Lord in our actions and our words and what we do to try and help bring other people into relationship with God as we were brought into relationship with God. That's why Paul declares in verse 20, look what he says, now we then are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, there's our word again, be reconciled to God. So Paul views himself and each believer, notice, as a spiritual ambassador. And what's an ambassador? An ambassador is an authorized representative from a king, or a leader who is sent to foreign soil to represent his king or his nation. He speaks on the king's behalf. He offers the king's terms. He makes treaties with people on the king's behalf. He sets all that up, and that's the idea spiritually. The Bible says we're ambassadors for Christ now, for our king, Christ. We're his ambassadors here on foreign soil. Do you feel like this earth is getting more and more foreign it's because you're an ambassador on foreign soil. You're not on home. You're not home yet. You're still away from home. Now you're an ambassador on foreign soil, and God's trying to use you. And look at the language of verse 20, if you would, as we're as ambassadors. It says, as though, he said, God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Let that thought and image sink into your mind. God pleading. God pleading, holy, awesome, all-sufficient, all-righteous God, who's the innocent party and the offended one by our disrespect and mistreatment, it says here that God is pleading with people to be reconciled to himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I just can't gloss over that. Why in the world with an almighty God? plead for us. The word plead means to beg, to urge. God has such love for you and I. Imagine the concept of God, if you would, condescending from being how awesome he is, condescending to plead 
with sinful people, to bleed, to plead with broken people. What a testimony of his love. That's why I've always loved that great hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of his reward. And just, that whole song just conveys the idea of it's amazing. And, and notice, what is God's spirit pleading about through me and through you? What is God trying to plead with you to beg others to do on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God? God wants to use you to plead with people regarding their condition spiritually to be reconciled back to right relationship with their God. Paul concludes verse 21 to say, for he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here in verse 21, Paul gives a beautiful, you might say, summary verse of Christ's substitutionary work for us. This verse 21 becomes the basis for how God really can offer the opportunity to be reconciled or be right with him. This verse declares a clear description of what we call the vicarious death of Jesus Christ. The word vicarious means to serve instead of another. So a vicarious act is something performed or suffered by one person on behalf of another person. So you suffer something so they don't have to suffer it. You do something on their behalf so that they can be benefited by it. You're a substitute. That's the idea here. And that's what Jesus did to remove the guilt and punishment of our sin. We are sinful human beings, right? We talked about that. You said, yeah, more than we'd like to hear about, but we talked about it. But the problem is because we are so dark and sinful and depraved and disgusting in our humanity, in our sinfulness, we cannot be acceptable in that condition to a holy God. We can't. That's not acceptable to enter into heaven in my sinful condition. Someone needed to resolve the dilemma. Thankfully, Jesus did. Because as a man, Jesus did what? He lived the sinless life. It tells us here in these verses of Jesus' sinless life, it says God made him who what? Verse 21, knew no sin. Jesus as a man lived that perfect sinless life you and I can't on behalf of mankind. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was in all points tempted, yet without sin. See, Jesus lived out the life that we live as human beings, and he did what we could never do. He never failed. He never succumbed to temptation. He lived a righteous, holy, perfect life to present that righteous, holy life to God as a representative of mankind. The Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 5, in Jesus, there is no sin. Yet as humans, we also have a dilemma because we deserve death for our sin. But guess what? Jesus took care of that. He died on our behalf. After declaring Jesus' sinless life, which makes acceptance to God, he refers to Jesus' sacrificial death. He says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That is, Jesus bore the sin of the entire world, dying vicariously in our place as the substitute. Isaiah 53 declares it this way of Jesus. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Listen to the language. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, 
and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary death. Jesus suffered for my sin. Jesus suffered for your sin. Jesus died for our sin. All of that was laid upon Jesus. The sinless Holy One had all the sin of the world put on top of him. Now, I just can't even begin to fathom in my mind what that must have been like. Imagine pure, holy Jesus. He never knew sin or evil. But yet in a moment, he became the sin offering for the whole world. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, though sinless, was treated and punished as if he was guilty of the sin of the entire world. Imagine embracing that. Embracing the punishment for the sin of all the world. That's why John looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He became that substitutionary lamb to embrace that sinful punishment for all of us, the innocent dying for the guilty. And here Paul describes why that happened. So an exchange could take place. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that here's the exchange, or what we're talking about, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus takes away our sin and exchange, he gives us his righteousness, his holy and sinless life. Notice it's the righteousness of God. Take note of that, the righteousness of God. It's a divine righteousness. It's a righteousness that we don't achieve or aspire or attain to. It's a righteousness that we receive. It's Jesus' righteousness, the righteousness of God, given to us because it's a sufficient righteousness to make us acceptable to heaven so that we can be approved and accepted into heaven. It's a gift we receive. Romans 3 says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And that's the spiritual position of all those who are, it says, in him, that is in relationship with Jesus. If you are in relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, though guilty sinners, we become righteous in God's sight. That's the great exchange. Now, do I still fail periodically? Absolutely. Do you still sin on occasion? Most certainly. But when God looks upon your life, he doesn't see you in your guilt or your sin. He sees you clothed and robed in the righteousness of Jesus because you are in relationship with Jesus. So God doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. And that's how he relates to you. And that's how he treats you. And that's how he gives access to you. This is the exchange that's happened. And look, this is such a crucial truth as a Christian to understand your position is you are righteous in God's sight through Jesus Christ. You are a guilty sinner who's been declared righteous. And look, that is incredibly encouraging because no matter what happens in our life, in the end, if you're a Christian, you're going to be okay because you're right with God. You are right with God. Abba Tony, life stinks. Yeah, it does. We can agree on that. But you're right with God. And in the end, it's going to be all right. In the end, it's going to be all right. And listen, if God's so excited about reconciliation with humanity who've offended him, 
shouldn't we be a little bit more open to reconciliation with fellow human beings? God help us. God reconciles people to himself. What right do I have to put my stubborn stake in the sand? Repent, man. Be reconciled with people. If God can do it, he's a God of reconciliation. Certainly he would lead us to do the same. And do you want to know why the world's so messed up? Everybody's so angry. Why is the world so crazy? And now they're making me angry. Because they're not right with God. That's why. It's not a political thing. They're just not right with God. And neither are we. God give us a heart for the world. Let's stand together.